Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. We good to go? Yeah. It's early spring in a forest reserve way up in the Ontario hinterlands. And not to get all dramatic or anything, but I'm part of a mission. I'm squished into the cab of a tiny pickup truck. Me and this guy with a bushy beard and a ball cap pulled low on his head. We're driving deep into the woods with the sort of cargo that most people wouldn't even dream of carrying into the wild. We're going up gravel roads, past a chalet, the lake in the distance. That's beautiful. The guy behind the wheel works for a local craft beer company. Our cargo is a couple of kegs of brown, sweet, sort of grassy-smelling liquid. It's malted barley mixed with water, pretty much. It's beer that hasn't fermented yet. Our cargo is the stuff that brewers call wort. And this mission into the woods, it's all part of a big experiment. The people who brought me here are betting that they can conjure alcohol and flavor as if by magic, straight out of the forest's air. I think this is it. We pull into a clearing to the side of the road. There's a bunch of other brewers waiting for us. We made it. And the first thing that hits us is that this forest might just be the most mosquito-infested place on planet Earth. It's like a cloud of bugs, man. (laughs) So beautiful. It's nature, dude. (laughs) What we're here for, guys. But there's another thing in the air here, and this is what we've come for. Wild microbes, crazy forest bacteria and yeasts. There are yeast cells floating in the air here all around us, and yeast especially. Yeast is the key to making beer. Okay, you guys ready? ready. That's Sam Corbet. He's the brewmaster at a craft beer company called Sawdust City. Sam and his crew pump that brown, sweet liquid, the wort, into a giant open vat in the back of the truck. Their plan, once the pumping is finished, is to just walk away. We're going to abandon that vat of wort to the elements overnight. Any bacteria or yeast that's present in the forest, in the trees, anywhere, will have the chance to fall into this liquid. Basically, we're just going to let the forest inoculate this wort. What they're hoping is that the wild yeasts in the air here will invade the wort in that open vat, and then those yeasts will work their magic. What they're hoping is that those wild yeasts will transform that wort into beer. The permutations are endless, so it's pretty fantastic. They all pooping out different flavors and aromas, so each one's different and unique, and you know, you're just drinking yeast poop and farts. Because that's what it is. I mean, it metabolizes the sugar, it poops out aromas and alcohol, and it's sort of the truth. If all goes well, Sam and his crew will have a completely wild, one-of-a-kind new brew on their hands. So we'll let it sit here now, and it's up to nature to take its course. From CBC, this is The Fridge Light, the hidden stories behind the food we eat. I'm Chris Nottle-Smith. You know that scene in The Graduate by the poolside? I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. I 
listening? Just so you know. Plastics. There's a great future in plastics. Here's a 21st century update. Really, I just want to say one word to you. Are you listening? Yeasts. That wild beer, wild beer is only the beginning. Because yeast, this flavor-making, alcohol-pooping miracle organism, it is way more interesting than just this substance that you shake from little packets into quick-rise pizza dough. After years of taking yeast totally for granted, cheese and winemakers, brewers and bakers, giant food processing companies, and even your local burger shop are discovering its almost mind-boggling potential. Yeast does so much more than just getting us buzzed or giving life to bread. Yeast, yes, yeast, is being used right now to produce things like jet fuel, lab-made cow's milk, spices and industrial chemicals. And the yeast boom is drawing billions of dollars from tech entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley. The bet they're making? Yeast will totally transform how we eat and drink, how we farm, how people get high, and even how much we pay for real estate. There's a great future in yeasts. On this episode, a look into that invisible microagricultural renaissance. And you better believe we'll be tasting some of that wild forest beer along the way. Okay, some basics. It's not just an ingredient. It is an organism. It is a living thing that you are working with. Yeast is pretty much everywhere. On fruit, on plants, floating in the air, in the guts of insects like paper wasps. There is yeast on essentially every single inch of your skin. Right now. One of my favorites would be called Zygosaccharomyces rooksii. Saccharomyces cerevisiae. <laughs> so what is yeast? It's a type of fungus. It's single-celled. It feeds on sugars. It's also beautiful. The colonies, when they're growing on the Petri dish, they look to me like something that Frank Geary would design. It's these undulating waves of yeast colonies growing across the plate. And we humans have used yeast for thousands of years. There is this kind of pseudo-argument that humans effectively drunk their way to civilization, which, you know, you need yeast for that. Thanks to that usefulness, it is one of the most studied organisms on Earth. Brewers have a relationship with their yeast strain. You learn when it's angry, you learn when it's not doing well. The DNA inside of a yeast is the same DNA that's inside humans. We, in fact, share so much of the sequence even across that very, very wide evolutionary gulf. It really does become this kind of like... Go ahead and say it. It's like a romantic relationship, no, isn't it's it? it's not. It's not a romantic... It, it, it's more so like having a pet, like having a dog. You have a demonic smile on your face right now. <laughs> this, this stuff makes me happy. It's just that apart from scientists and food companies and craft brewers, most of us are totally oblivious to yeast. When's the last time you had a conversation about Saccharomyces cerevisia or Britannomyces bruxellensis? But a hundred years ago, well, yeast was huge. Not just the idea of yeast or putting it in bread dough. People actually ate the stuff, straight up. Yeast eating was a full-on craze. The makers of Fleischmann's Yeast bring you another fast and furious program featuring music by Louis Armstrong and his orchestra. Oh man, there's so much more to yeast than you or I probably realized. <laughs> I, I welcome any invitation to talk about yeast. This is Catherine Price, a journalist in Philadelphia. In her book called Vitamania, she writes about the yeast-eating fad. Yeah, it was funny because I was reviewing my own story this morning to make sure I had my details in my head. And 
I was like, this can't be true. This can't be true. <laughs> well, How am I going to fact too. check this? Yeah. And I was like, oh, I wrote it. And <laughs> anyway, what's true? It's true that yeast was a health food for um, several years, about a decade, uh, around 1920 or so. Um, and people were eating yeast all over the place in all sorts of different forms with the assumption that it would improve their health in all sorts of different ways. By 1927, the per capita consumption of Fleischmann's yeast was 2.45 pounds a year, which is very strange because I've tasted that yeast and it is not delicious. Okay, can you tell me, what does this taste like? <laughs> so yeast cakes, I really hope that it was like a treat, you know, because they called it um, wholesome candy. Creamy, wholesome creamy, candy. Some creamy, wholesome candy or a luscious treat. I kept thinking about maple sugar candies, you know, the ones that are kind of crisp on the outside, but then they're soft on the inside and they're delicious and they're shaped like maple leaves. And I used to love those. That sounds so good. Right. Those are great. So I thought maybe it was like that. So it's not at all that. I, I actually got <laughs> And I know this because I... Um, I got my hand on these yeast cakes, and they're basically just um, foil-wrapped, big bullion cube-sized yeast. Nothing cake-like beyond the shape. <laughs> and, you know, I unwrapped this with great excitement, took a sniff because they said it had a pungent, appetizing smell, and it basically smelled like sour beer. And then I did take a bite of the yeast cake, and the texture reminded me of... Um, like a mushroom where you when you break a mushroom and it's kind of this soft yet crisp breaking feeling that uh. happens. And that wasn't as bad, but what was really bad was what happened next, which is it starts to kind of dissolve onto your tongue and then coat the inside of your mouth. And I couldn't get it out of my mouth. I took like the tiniest bite of this cake. It's like I've got yeast spores all over my tongue and the roof of my mouth. And I could not, I literally couldn't get my hands raised to my mouth to put the rest of the yeast cake into my mouth. <laughs> The journey to that point is a story of ingenuity and opportunity, plus a whole lot of good old-fashioned American hucksterism, too. So to take a step back for a minute, what's the deal with yeast? So yeast as we know it today, like commercial yeast, really became a thing in the 1860s when uh, Charles Fleischmann and a businessman named uh, James Gaff set up a yeast production company in a distillery in Cincinnati. So before then, when people wanted to bake bread and use yeast, you had to either harvest wild yeast from the air or you could use a starter from someone else, meaning yeast that had been um, kept alive by feeding the yeast sugar and stuff to eat. Which, to be clear, when Catherine talks about harvesting wild yeast from the air, that's sourdough she's talking about. And apart from, like, wild man bill types prospecting for gold and a few bakeries in San Francisco, most Americans looked down on sourdough. They didn't use it. They liked their bread soft and sweet. So if you were a total weirdo, you could use sourdough. Or you could skim it off the top of foaming beer and use brewer's yeast. Everybody else just stopped in at the local beer makers because there were breweries in almost every town in North America at the time. But all of these yeasts were pretty inconsistent. There wasn't a way to really guarantee that this batch of yeast was going to be the same tasting as the next one. So Fleischmann um, sensed an opportunity, and he set up this yeast business. But the yeast that they were producing in this plant was what was called fresh yeast. So it was a very perishable product. 
And so Fleischmann himself used to go around from door to door and actually sell these yeast cakes to homemakers and door and to door, it, like he would door ring door. doorbells. Do you want to buy some yeast? Yes, I yes. love that. Like the yeast man, I guess, like the, <laughs> the equivalent of the, the, the milkman. In 1876, at the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition, Fleischmann's exhibit, a Viennese bakery and cafe, was one of the fair's star attractions. And this is a big deal because 10 million people visited the exhibition that year, more than the entire U.S. population at the time. The smell of that Fleischmann's display of soft, sweet, fresh-baked bread, it wafted around the entire grounds. In the ensuing decades, yeast becomes a really big thing, like a very big product. It's a runaway hit. At the end of the 1800s, compressed yeast is, it's kind of like the equivalent of a fidget spinner crossed with Amazon Alexa and a Tesla Model S. It's one of the most buzzed about consumer products of its day. Plus, Fleischmann's has a pretty great side hustle going. Remember how yeast can also produce alcohol? It's kind of a great business opportunity. You, on the one hand, have this yeast to sell for people to make bread with, and on the other hand, you're actually making alcohol from the uh, yeast you know, replication or whatever. Right. So you ended with Fleischmann's Gin. The first gin company in the United States. And things hum along that way for a while. Fast forward to 1920 or so, and you begin to run into problems. In the 1920s, yeast sales start to freefall because people are eating store-bought bread. Which reduces the amount of bread that's being baked at home. And there's another bigger problem prohibition. And when you put these two things together, you can see that you've got a really serious business problem if your business is based on alcohol and yeast. In 1920, prohibition kills Fleischmann's gin business cold. So when you get to kind of this crisis moment for the yeast people, you also start to have this awareness of vitamins. And that's a big deal because vitamins are invisible and tasteless and absolutely essential for health. And as such, once the public began to learn about vitamins, food advertisers realized that this was a amazing new marketing tool. And so that's when you start to see this um, push to eat fresh yeast or compressed yeast in the form of yeast cakes, and that becomes a health craze. A few of the company's health claims, eating fresh yeast can cure boils, acne, soft bones, tooth decay, furry tongue, bad breath, and depression. Fresh yeast cures headaches, crying spells, fallen stomach, obesity, quote, clogged intestines. And this one is fitting, really, when you think about it. Eating fresh yeast, Fleischmann's promised, was also a cure for below-average intellect. That yeast-eating craze, it died out in the 1930s. And by the Second World War, bakers began switching over to a new Fleischmann's creation. Welcome to the French chef. I'm Julia Child. French bread, for the making the dough, you have to have yeast. And I'm going to use dry, active yeast. And those are these... Dry, active yeast. It's more or less the same stuff a lot of home cooks use today. It was far more convenient than cake yeast, or God forbid, than sourdough. And you could measure its shelf life in months and years instead of days. As for the downside, yeast now was uniform, standardized, just another packaged shelf-stable product, like cream of tartar or cornstarch. As for the flavor and the infinite variety that people used to get with wild yeasts, the microbiological serendipity... Those disappeared for most of our food. In brewery after brewery and in bakeries all across the continent, dry, granular yeast became the go-to. Cheesemakers who'd relied on the bacteria and yeasts that came naturally in their milk now turned to giant corporations like Cargill and DuPont. A lot of what we ate and drank began to taste the same. 
dry, packaged yeast even became the standard in the world of wine. I'm just going to get a level from you. Norman Hardy, Norman Hardy, Norman Hardy. Why don't we start with you saying who you are and what you do? I am Norman Hardy. I'm the winemaker at Norman Hardy Winery in beautiful Prince Edward County. What do you have there? This is a book from Scott Lapps. And it's got everything you can add to wines, finding agents, microbial controls, enzymes, and uh, yeast. And there's a ton of yeast in here. It's a yeast catalog. It's a yeast catalog. Yeast that give you different flavors. They give you different textures. They have... uh, People can choose these because they will give certain flavors year in, year out. Yeast gives the flavor. I thought the grapes give the flavor. Well, the grapes give some flavor, but uh, yeast is a very, very powerful tool. What flavors do you think commercial yeast can add to wine? Everything. This I, is Marin McHugh. She's the sommelier at Actinolite Restaurant in Toronto. You know, I know there's yeast you can add that are going to make play up oak flavors and buttery flavors and things that you would normally get through soil, the grape, the barrel use, the oak use, the aging, all of that, that you could just add a strain and be like, oh, now this tastes like hazelnut and you know, butter and toast and whatever. Like, I'm pretty sure you can, they've manipulated to the point where you can add anything. Can you read to me from the catalog some of the different flavor descriptors that you can get? So let's let's assume you have a bunch of juice from grapes. What are the different things you can make it taste like? Fermavin A33 enhances character and aromas of black currant, dark chocolate, and fresh tobacco. L2226... Black cherry, berry, and cherry cola. ICV D254, butterscotch, hazelnut, and almond. And then there's 71B, a strain that produces banana flavors. At one point, it was so common in France's Beaujolais region that a lot of people still think that's what Beaujolais naturally tastes like. Bananas. Which, seriously, isn't that bananas? Fresh fruits like apple, pear, and strawberry. Violets, raspberries, cassis, strawberries, and black pepper. Guava, passion fruit, and So imagine the scene. It's a pastoral vineyard. There's a winemaker with, I don't know, a mule and a pickaxe. He's worked his entire life growing the perfect grapes. Well, no. Forget that idea. The taste of that wine you're drinking there's just as good a chance that it came from a catalog. Yeah, you can order whatever you like from, from this magazine, apparently. And so it isn't hard to understand why in the last few years a new camp is formed. The wild things, or as I like to think of them, yeast wranglers. I think, you know, for us, fermenting with natural yeast is critical, and, and I've chosen to ferment, uh, when possible, all our Chardonnays and all our Pinots and all our Reds with natural yeast. Um, we have chosen fields and great terroirs to grow grapes. On those grapes are yeast that come from those fields. If I truly want to express that field or that area, fermenting it with the yeast that comes from there is very important to me because yeast is such a powerful tool. There's more layers to the flavor when it comes to natural yeast. You're getting more more depth, more complexity. You can sense the, you know, the minerality, the soil. You can taste all that much more than something that's you know, made to taste a certain way that's manipulated. For our whites, we actually culture yeast from each field. It sounds like a big, complicated process, but it's really not that hard. Um, the first 40 liters that comes off the press, we uh, put into two glass demijohns, 20-liter jugs that you'll see at any home winemaking kit store, and we let it settle for a day, and then we take all the clean juice off, and then it gets very technical. We put a 
fish bubbler from Walmart in there and super saturated with <laughs> oxygen. When it's nice and sunny, we put them in the sun, and when it's cold, we put them inside, and we make sure we have a piece of duct tape on each one of them so we know which one is from which field. This is super high-tech. This is super... So Walmart fish bubbler, duct tape. Duct tape. uh, Also very important, a pen that doesn't erase. No spreadsheets involved here. (laughs) That sort of wild yeast wrangling? Less than a decade ago, it was considered a novelty in the world of wine. But today... It's what all the cool kids do. At Actinolite Restaurant, natural wine is just about all Marin McHugh serves. With this kind of resurgence of natural wine, people think of it as a new trend, but it's not. It's people going back to their roots, the same as, you know, making things by hand in any artisanal product or agriculture organically. It's going back to the way we used to do it. And remember how North Americans used to look down on the taste of sourdough? All across the continent, bread lovers are making up for lost time. So I have it set up here. This is our sourdough culture, Murray. 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 And you stuck your This is Simon Blackwell. He's a chef and baker who owns Blackbird Bakery in Toronto. Like craft beer and natural wine, sourdough bread made with wild yeast is having a renaissance. I've joined him just in time for Murray's feeding. I want to make sure that it's really well blended. He adds flour and water, stirs like a madman. When I do my starter at home, I just stick my finger in and mix it around yeah. three times. You're a lot more deliberate about yours. The starter's light brown. It's wet, kind of like a watery red. porridge. You know, we, we refer to Murray as the life force of the bakery. Simon keeps his starter in a big so bucket. Important. Now, I just have to emphasize something here. The life in that bucket, it's not just yeast. It's also lactic acid bacteria, all sorts of other microorganisms. Sourdough starter is this super complex biological ecosystem. You could even say that Simon, for all his skill at forming loaves and baking baguettes, his most important job is as a micro farmer. And we never change. Like Even on Christmas Day, when the bakery is closed and I'm at home with my family, Murray comes home with me, and I take him out of the fridge, and I feed him twice a day. Same, everything's exactly the same. That starter, Murray, is everything. He's very much loved, this Murray bucket of yeast in the bakery. But Simon loves his starter, feeds it on a strict routine, and what he gets in return is pretty incredible. And I'm just going to cut this one right in half, and we'll see what the crumb looks like. And when it's still warm, it's almost custardy. You know, like the crumb is still soft and really you can feel the moisture in that. There's an incredible complex sweetness to it. And sweetness yeah. is not something I always use as a, you know, sweetness sometimes is so easy. You know, like Wonder Bread is sweet. Right. This is sweet with incredible character to it. Uh, and sweet without adding sugar. Wonder Bread is, tastes sweet because they've added sugar to it. This is three ingredients, right? It's, that's, and that's the magic because it's the, it's the process and it's the fermentation. It's just three ingredients, flour, water, and salt. But thanks to the yeast and bacteria, the invisible ecosystem that bakers like Simon feed and coddle and wrangle into life, thanks to the flavors and smells that ecosystem spits out, sourdough bread is one of the most complex foods there is. I would say this is probably the most flavorful of the sourdoughs that we're making here. Have a piece of that really, really dark crust. Oh my God, it's got that mm-hmm. bitter, sweet, almost alcoholic, like bourbony exterior. Mm-hmm. It's spectacular. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it's tender inside. And the contrast with this, this sweet... And remember those brewers out in the bug-infested wilderness? 
In the world of craft beer, the yeast you use or find has become a selling point because, remember, different yeasts produce different flavors. And so yeast has become a competitive advantage. The wilder it is, the better. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. Okay, so you were just telling me about this brewery in Philadelphia. What'd they do? They had an old French cabinet. They brought a cabinet over from France and then harvested yeast from inside the wood and then produced a beer from it. There's a lot of people doing a lot of cool things now that the science is available to everybody. You know, from the time when we started, when the, uh, the cream ale was the craziest beer you can get, now you can get a French oak harvested beer. Like, it's crazy. But this is, uh, it's like the amber in Jurassic Park. They can, like, pull it out and make something from the past. That's Sam Corbet from Sawdust City. It's the morning after we drove out into the woods and abandoned that vat of sweet, malted barley water. And full disclosure, I am feeling a little woozy right now. If ever you find yourself at a party with, oh, a dozen thirsty beer makers, do not try to keep up. Anyway, it's the morning after, and I'm a hot, headachey mess. I'm sure it's probably just allergies or something. And because all that sugary liquid got left out in the open overnight in a forest full of critters, we're half expecting that it'll be gone when we arrive. First of all, hopefully there won't be any bears in it or raccoons in the... I'm happy to say the only thing that got into it is a bunch of organisms too tiny to see. Our tree fort held strong. (laughs) All our armory and battery of trees branches managed to make it through the night without anybody taking them down. Looks pretty much how we left it. No bear prints all around it. No, no. Oh, it smells like tomato soup. It smells like spicy tomato soup. It's crazy. Yeah. And so how long before this becomes beer that we're drinking? Hopefully within one week, like three or four days. So we leave the sugary liquid in the forest overnight. Three, four days from now. It will be beer, very green beer, but beer nonetheless. Yeah, just as an outsider, both you guys, you're both beer people, microbiology people. We left sugary liquid in the forest overnight. Stuff fell into it. And four days from now, it's going to be beer. Beer. That's, yeah. that's magic. It is. And, I, you know, that's why I think every civilization on earth has found alcohol. As long as you can produce the, the sugary liquid, nature will do the rest. And it's pretty fantastic. And we're just happy to abide by the laws of nature. So this is the, the main production floor. Is, That's uh, Richard Priest you're hearing. He's one of the scientists who helped brewers like Sam. Along with a couple of other microbiologists, Nate Ferguson and Angus Ross, he runs a beer yeast company called Escarpment Labs. We're all yeast nerds. Like, we're all, like, when it comes to, like, the realm of nerdiness, like, we are in the yeast realm. 
Aren't you supposed to have like yeast-friendly clothing? Is there a special line for guys like you? <laughs> there, there are no other guys like us. Their headquarters is this huge industrial space at the edge of Guelph, a town in southern Ontario. The size tank. This is a 50-liter tank. And do I see beer pouring out of one of these tanks into a drain? It's, it's media. It's not, it's not beer. Uh, the so building looks kind of like a Costco outlet, but with stainless steel fermenting tanks instead of endless shelves filled with boxes of, like, raspberry vanilla wagon wheels. And the smell here, the smell is beautiful. Toasty grain and a sort of yeasty funk. It's a smell that makes you thirsty. We supply yeast to craft brewers in Canada. At the most fundamental level, that's what our, our business is based on. That description sells the company short. Escarpment sells liquid yeast. And liquid yeast, unlike dry yeast, liquid yeast is kind of like a smartphone next to a Commodore 64. It is cheap, fast, and easy to produce. So instead of being limited to a catalogue of 10 or 20 pretty much ubiquitous varieties, Escarpment Labs can keep hundreds of yeasts on file. In all of North America, there's just a handful of companies that do what they do. We've isolated yeast from local environments in Ontario, like fruit, trees, stuff like that. You know, we have a lot of the, the standard commercial yeasts that are out there. And then I'm also pretty well connected with other people like me around the world, other people that are collecting yeasts everywhere else. Yeast nerds. So, yeast nerds. Um, so because of that, I'm able to trade a lot of these cultures. Escarpment Labs yeast collection, its archive, has 700 different cultures and counting. Like we have yeast from a Hawaiian coffee farm. We have you know, yeast from citrus trees in Florida. And we also have, like, a huge collection of these um, crazy Norwegian yeasts now. I'll show you one of the ones we got in. Um, this is from a farmer in Norway. This was like a freezer bag. When I got this, it was fully inflated because the yeast that he pulled out of his freezer had started to re-ferment in the mail. There's yeast in here, and I was able to, you know, it was still alive. So we got yeast out of that. So, you know, all shapes and sizes. You might get a mason jar, you know. That looks like pee. <laughs> it looks like pee. A lot of them do. I mean, it's, it's yeah, yellow liquid. So. And, and hold on. I want to look at this fridge here because this is incredible. Can you tell me what we're looking at in your fridge? Like this okay. top shelf, it looks, it looks, it's incredible. It's like test tubes. So the and top shelf is pretty, is pretty organized. It's, it's our, our working plates. So this is where the yeast cultures start. Those look like what I think of as petri dishes. Yeah, yeah, it's a petri dish with solid agar medium on it, and then we can grow colonies of yeast, and, and that's how you know, a big batch of yeast would start, is just from one of these little colonies. Tell me what we're looking at here. So this is a yeast strain on a plate. Um, so, these little, so we're looking at these beautiful kind of uh, like teal green. It looks like something you see under the sea or in like a Hubble space <laughs> picture. And there are these green yeah. dots with white in the middle, and each of these colonies. is a colony of yeast. Yeah. Just to be clear here, the colonies in this Petri dish, each one is no wider around than the tip of your pinky finger. When you see that, and then you figure out Escarpment Lab's business model, you realize just how brilliant these guys are. Each one of these is something that we could then take off this plate, inoculate into some growth medium, and then eventually grow it up from this solid plate to, say, 10 mils, 200 mils, 1,000 liters, and that's how we grow and propagate the yeast. So you can do that. That can be 1,000 liters. Eventually, yeah. In, a, yeah. in about a week days. and a half? Yeah. Do you want to know about the rest of the fridge? Uh, well, uh, like, is, is any of this somebody's lunch? Yes. Uh, <laughs> someone has put their lunch in here. There's a bottle of salad dressing in there. <laughs> we have, a, we have a, a, a lunch fridge in the office upstairs, but it's full of beer right now. So we need to uh, run the So, wine, beer, bread, 
the perfect thing to pair with them is cheese, right? Most of North America's cheesemakers got hooked on packaged, processed starter cultures too. Yeast and bacteria strains that are produced and sold by giant food and chemical companies. Most of them, but not all. A few years ago in Vermont, a cheese dairy called Jasper Hill said, enough's enough. They've gone full out to reverse that trend, to find tasty new microbial cultures, not in a package, but in the environment where they live. So we took wild yeast from Greensboro, and we took the industrial yeast, and we made uh, two separate batches of cheese with the wild and the industrial yeast. This is Ben Wolf. He's a microbiologist who studies yeast and bacteria communities and how they interact in food and drink. He runs a lab at Tufts University in Massachusetts. And then we tasted it after we uh, made the cheese and aged it, and the wild yeast was so much funkier and so much more interesting wow. than this very, very sort of boring and tame industrial yeast. And so Jasper Hills right now is ramping up that program. They have an on-site microbiologist who's working to characterize strains and go through all the steps to begin to use these strains in their cheese making. And I think this could open up whole new flavors or maybe even whole new types of cheese in the North American cheese making scene. You know, it's essentially like going out and finding new colors of paint to make whole new uh, types of paintings. And I think, like I said, it may revolutionize the the way that we experience cheese. I, I think, you know, as you're talking about that, I think of astronomy and these people who spend their lives looking through telescopes, looking for new planets or new stars. And it's really rare. And the sense I get is that microbiologists are finding new yeasts, new bacteria quite often. Am I mistaken to think that? No, absolutely. You know, anywhere you go in your backyard, even in the urban environment where we've been living for a long time, there are microbes living around us that we've never identified before, we've never characterized before. And so you don't have to look very far to find something that could be completely new to science or even have new properties for us to use as humans. And even outside the rarefied worlds of wine and craft beer and artisanal cheese, yeast is there in our everyday lives in ways that you might not have thought. It's used all through the soup and sauce aisle to replace salt and MSG in canned foods. It's in diet salad dressings to trick your tongue into believing that zero-fat thousand island on your wheatgrass and pickled quinoa Buddha bowl isn't half as unappealing as it actually is. Yeast is in kombucha and probiotic yogurt, in miso and soy sauce. And if you ever buy antibiotic-free chicken, there's a good chance that bird was raised a little like a 1920s health nut. Yeast eating is back. On chicken farms, it is at least. In a lot of cases, the yeast supplements they're getting are just as effective as routine antibiotics ever were. But that's nothing compared to what yeast can do when scientists rearrange its DNA. It's the next big thing that will have you saying, where's the beef? It looks like a burger. It smells like a burger. There you go. But does it taste like a burger? Let's ask this vegetarian. And it was so good that I was kind of like grossed out. So take a bite out of this. It's actually a plant-based patty. Ah, the Impossible Burger, the biggest thing right now in plant-based protein. It's called the Impossible Burger because by most accounts, it tastes impossibly similar to real meat. The thing about the Impossible Burger, it's not your usual moosewood cookbook-style blend of beans and tempeh and maybe a few chopped mushrooms with way too many spices. The Impossible Burger is actually pink and juicy inside, like real meat. It even kind of bleeds when you bite into one. It cost $190 million to develop. Bill Gates is an investor, and it owes its existence to genetically modified yeast. Yeast is a, a fantastic workhorse, so it can produce a lot of different types of metabolites and then secrete them out of their cells. 
and you can grow them in large numbers and big vats. So what you can do is you can take genes or whole parts of other organisms that you're interested in and stick them into yeast and use the yeast to make that compound. It's a it's a yeast are essentially a really quick、uh, way to produce a lot of a particular compound of interest. The thing that makes the Impossible Burger taste so meaty is a compound called heme, and heme is usually found in blood. It's what gives real meat that minerally, iron-rich tang. But there are trace amounts of heme in other organisms too, like soy plants. And so the Impossible Burger people took the heme gene from a soy plant, snip, and stuck it into a yeast cell. After that, all you have to do is feed it and watch it multiply, and boom! Guess what? It starts spitting out heme. Entire industrial vats of the stuff, and your all-vegetarian burger tastes well, impossibly like the real thing. Biotech companies are using GMO yeast to manufacture a lot more than just heme. Many companies around the world are using this platform to produce、uh, particular vitamins. They're using them to produce drugs for us, for humans to use for human health. And these little factories, these little microbial factories that scientists have studied for a long time to understand their potential, and now we're taking them apart and putting them back together at the genetic level to have them do fantastic things for us. It's big business with a capital B. We now have a brewery tank that's fifty thousand liters of yeast, producing peach flavor. This is Christina Agapakis, a microbiologist who works for a company called Ginkgo Bioworks in Boston. So Ginkgo is an organism design company. We work with microorganisms and yeasts to make products for a lot of different industries. So from flavor and fragrance ingredients to.、Uh, Cosmetics to medicines to things for agriculture or or beyond. The company's got hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital financing, and Ginkgo's clients include Cargill and DARPA, the U.S. military's research branch. We are working on things like rose and enzymes that make cheese taste better. Other companies like Ginkgo are using yeast to produce jet fuel and the flavors found in vanilla beans and saffron. They've even rigged yeast to produce the key ingredient in anti-malaria medication, an ingredient that used to be found only in a rare tropical plant. Anything that living things can make, I think you can start to think theoretically that might be something that yeast could make too.、Um, so anything that's you know a molecule, a small molecule, a compound that's you know a, a vitamin, a, a, some sort of nutrient, a medicine that comes from a plant, something that comes from an animal, even a lot of those are, are now ingredients, things that can be made by yeast instead, because the, the DNA is DNA. The DNA inside of a yeast is the same DNA that's inside human. Um, and we, in fact, share so much of the sequence, even across that very, very wide evolutionary gulf.、Um, and because DNA is the same, you can transfer DNA from one organism to another. And now the yeast can run the code effectively. To use an analogy to computers and software, you can run the code from another organism now and have that yeast be doing a little bit of the work of the other plant or whoever. In Western Canada, there are researchers using GMO yeasts to produce opioids—you know, the chemicals that usually come from poppy plants. Other researchers are using yeast to manufacture some of the compounds in marijuana. And you may be glad to hear that your French fry addiction is about to become a little less unhealthy. One company has developed a yeast spray that neutralizes the harmful chemicals caused by deep frying. As for my favorite example, that's got to be the Silicon Valley company that's making cow's milk in a laboratory. 
By implanting cow's DNA into yeast, they've learned to manufacture milk proteins in, yeah, you know where this is going, in giant vats. Which is turning heads in some very high places. In the New York Times business pages, one economist from Yale has argued that buying land may not be all that great an investment. His reasoning? If we don't need cows to make milk, then we don't need farmland either. And this massive chunk of real estate, this huge swath of North America, of just about every continent that's used right now for farming and pasture, for producing the animal feed that's fed to these cows, it suddenly becomes a lot less valuable. And it's all, pretty much, because of this. This can all be a lot to get your head around, and genetically modified yeast is not without controversies. For a lot of people, just the words genetic engineering set off all kinds of alarms for human health and for the planet. When you go to a party and you tell people what you do, or you tell people, I work for a company that makes organisms, what's the, what kind of responses do you get? It varies quite a bit. Uh, so I'd say it goes from, can you check out my starter culture and let me know what's <laughs> wrong with it? <laughs> why, why is my kombucha smell funky? So I get that a lot. Um, I get the, so are you going to kill everyone on Earth <laughs> question? <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, you know, the, the kind of apocalyptic scenarios. Um, and then um, yeah, most people are like, That's pretty cool. You want a beer? <laughs> so, you know, so they're anywhere in between. <laughs> but, but seriously, are you going to kill everyone on Earth? No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Me, I'm not convinced the yeast apocalypse is happening anytime soon. As for the yeast revolution, though, that's bubbling all around us. Once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere. In the grocery store, where it's in a huge amount of what we eat and drink. And even on the highway, where the ethanol it makes is powering cars. And I can't help thinking about it every time I reach for a frosty drink. Hey, man. Hey, Chris. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Good to see you again. Good to see you. So I brought the samples. A couple weeks sample. after that night in the forest, Sam from Sawdust City turns up with a mason jar, that forest beer. It's nice and bright yellow. It's a wonderful color. Come on in. Thanks. So it's about 4.5% alcohol. Kind of citrusy, funky. But it remarkably tastes clean and much like a beer. A nice, pleasant acidity. It's not, I, I, I don't know why I was kind of thinking it was going to be like forest. Like there was going to be some, a little like disgusting edge to it somehow. It's not like that at all. No, it is. It's, it's clean. It's, it's really good. It's remarkably clean for a beer that has, you know, no commercial yeast in it. Inoculated with whatever happened to be in the forest that day. Is this what you expected to get out of the beer? It's cleaner than I, I imagined. And it's happened very rapidly. Like this could have taken a much longer time, but it's only been, I think, 21 days, about three weeks. So for this to happen in that period of time is, is pretty remarkable and to be as clean as it is. I could see putting this out as just a wild fermented ale and selling it as a summer ale. Like, it's pretty remarkable. The forest did its job? It, it did. I mean, we didn't pay it a lot, but it worked hard. <laughs> Thanks to everybody who appeared on this episode of The Fridge Light. The voices you heard today were Richard Priest, Angus Ross, and Nate Ferguson of Escarpment Labs, Sam Corbet and the crew at Sawdust City Brewing, Norman Hardy of Norm Hardy Winery, microbiologist Ben Wolf from Tufts University, Marin McHugh from Actinolite Restaurant, author Catherine Price, Simon Blackwell of Blackbird Bakery, and Christina Agapakis of Ginkgo Bioworks, who, it's worth mentioning here, she once made a cheese with bacteria that she harvested from her own foot. 
This episode was produced by me and Paolo Pietro Paolo with Zoe Tennant, Lisa Godfrey, Michelle Macklem, and Cecil Fernandez. Our executive producer is RF Narani, and this is the Fridge Lights second ever episode. Please help us get better, help us grow, review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd get a real rise out of it. For more information on this episode, visit cbc.ca slash thefridgelight. And if you have something to share about this week's episode, connect with us on Twitter, share photos with us on Instagram. We're at FridgelightCBC. This is The Fridge Light. I'm Chris Nottlesmith. And yeah, I did eat some yeast. Okay, I'm going to have some. I am kind of nervous about this. Yeah. Oh, first impression is it just, it sucks all the moisture out of your mouth. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's not good. That's not good. <laughs> Is that garbage? Is that garbage? For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.